0: This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello, this is another episode of the Dungeon Master's Handbook. I'm Michael, also known as Chicago Wiz. Thank you for listening in this episode i 'm going to cover what 's going on in my three advanced dungeons and Dragons campaigns. Um, I fortunately had three games uh, this week, so i 've got a little bit to talk about we 're going to talk about how I handle overland uh, adventures outdoor adventures. We're going to talk a little bit about handling a race that is completely alien and thinks a lot differently from others, as well as touch on real quick about uh, a really cool thing about AD&D first edition combat. We're going to talk a little bit about what happens when thieves uh, fail their uh, pick lock checks, and um, that's about it, but before we begin, I, I... like to take a moment to talk about something really personal to me. Um, last Wednesday evening, my, uh, my son passed away. Um, there's really no easy way of saying that. Um, Vincent Victor was 25 years old. Um, he lived in Mid-State, Illinois, was going to school he was uh, going to be an artist um, perhaps a teacher in art and um, it was a stupid random accident that uh, took him away from us I don't even know how to process this Um, as I tell a lot of people right now I'm in active denial and distraction phase Um, but brief nibbles at the edges. Um, Vincent and I had been estranged for some time um, and and we had reconnected fortunately and one of the things we reconnected with was through Dungeons and Dragons. Um, Vincent played fifth edition. Um, Vincent had known that I was really into Dungeons and Dragons and had seen me painting my little figures. And uh, we connected over that. Uh, Vincent showed me his drawings of his characters, and I showed Vincent pictures of my stupid little lead figures, and uh, we encouraged each other. I guess I don't have any really words of wisdom right now because I'm still crawling through this myself. Um, But um, if you uh, have your loved ones close, hug them tight. And if you don't, go get close to them and hug them tight. We are not promised tomorrow and things can happen in a blink of an eye and then it's gone and um, it's really important that you make those connections okay um so um i know this is a little bit soon i I didn't promise that i was going to have regular podcasts and here i am uh podcasting right away a week after my resurrection episode but it just so happens that this uh, past seven days I had an online game, I had my monthly tabletop game, and I had something interesting uh, happen in my play-by-post game, so I wanted to take a few minutes and talk about those. So all three of these games, if I've mentioned before, take place in the same campaign world, but separated by um, vast geography, basically taking places on different parts of a continent that's the size of the landmass of Russia, uh, and in one case, the uh, game, the play-by-post game, is taking place two years in the past because things move very slowly in play-by-post games. Um, so let's talk about the online game first. Uh, the online game uh, is uh, they are the PCs are going through a bit of a travel right now. They are they started off in a small little backwater village and now they're traveling to the nearest larger town in order to get rid of some of the treasure that they've collected and to try and get better equipment uh you know little podung village isn't going to have Three to 4,000 gold pieces just laying around for the uh, party to get rid of their uh, hard-earned loot. And yes, they've earned about that that gold amount in uh, some of the uh, gems and jewelry that they've collected. So they're on the road. There has been a lot of digital and actual ink spilled on how to do Overland Adventures. And I've gone back and forth over the years with a lot of different techniques. you know, trying out the day-by-day, hex-by-hex, hour-by-hour slog. Um, I've tried point crawls. Um, I've tried summaries. Um, I've tried a lot of different things. And the technique that I've uh, settled in on for the time being is I give the players a choice. Um, they have the option of doing a day-by-day type of uh, approach where you know each day we'll we'll cover you know does anything happen during the day okay the evening ends and you are at some sort of a road stop um like in the way I do it road stops are villages hamlets camps basically some place that they're not camping out and fending for themselves um not every day would end with a road stop so maybe they're camping out um and you know m- Something may or may not happen during that day, but at least, you know, there's a kind of a sense of day by day. And some people like that. Um, the other option that I give to my players is that, you know what, you're going to travel until something happens. And uh, if that's three to four days, then fine. Three to four days passed, blam, and, you know, five seconds, and now you've hit a day where something happens. Um And, uh, you know, we'll go through what happens and then we'll continue on until they get to their destination or until they get to something that's absolutely so interesting that they would have to stop, Uh, which I guess technically would count as an encounter. So it's the same thing anyway. uh, (laughs) Now, my preparation, though, is uh, something that handles both. Basically, I figure out a corridor, if you will, of travel. And and that is one of the nice things is about my game is my players tend to stick to the mission. Now, of course, I have the whole area kind of roughed in, you know, I figure out about roughly about, you know, maybe six to 10 hexes around the place that they currently are at and then if they're going to travel I'll figure out a rough corridor of about three to four hexes you know in one direction and three or four hexes in another direction enough to give me enough leeway that should the players really go off the beaten path I've got a good idea of what's what and what's where and I don't have to try and roll everything up the table I don't like rolling everything up at the table I don't like slowing things down Most of the time players are cool with it, especially if they really go off the beaten path, and I'll warn them, I have nothing prepared here, you may have to sit for 5, 10, 15 minutes while I figure out what's going on. Um, and, And when that has happened, my players have usually been, you know, in fact, almost all the time they've been very cool about it and understanding. Okay, so, figure out the rough path and what I will do is I will then draw the shortest line between you know point A to point B and given their rate you know kind of estimated rate of travel do I know if they have horses do I know they're going to be on uh, you know foot I will figure out how long it's going to take them and so I'm kind of mapping out a day-by-day approach and then for each day do they have an encounter in the morning, do they have an encounter at night? Um, that's the way I do it. Um, if they do, I will note the type of encounter based on where they're at when that encounter takes place. So if they're in a particular hex that already has like some sort of a major um, feature to it, then it's, po- it's more than likely that that's where that encounter will take place. If not, if they don't encounter the major thing or there is nothing major then I'll see if there's any smaller bits in the in the campaign or in the hex sorry the hex mind you and then um, I'll check to see if that's what they encounter if not then I'll go look at my random charts and see what happens there so kind of taking a step back when I uh, map out my hex map uh, there's a uh, approach I take that I stole from a blog post called the Welsh Piper um, and in that approach, what they do is they figure out for each hex if there's a major feature, if there's x number of minor features, and then there's certain percentages on what do the players um, encounter as they go through that hex. Now, Um, I like to build things with a story, so usually my major and minor features will have some sort of connectivity to each other, some sort of relationship, um, if possible. Not always, but, you know, I like to tell a story. Okay, so as I'm mapping out the players travel by day to day, my hex map and my hex key will give me those tools to figure out if there's an encounter there, what'll happen. And so I lay all of this out for their... Projected path if you will And if maybe there's some natural branch points I'll kind of figure that out too Now in reality This is just a list It's a list of, of days um, And a I think they'll be in this hex in this day, I think they'll be in this hex in this day, and so on and so on, here's the encounters that happen. So that way, if the players decide, you know what, we want to do it day by day, and they're following, say, a road or a trail or something that's going to keep them on the path, I've got a pretty good idea of what's going to happen when, and I can kind of just, you know, walk through, okay, day one, nothing happens, Well, day two, Uh, you know something happens oh and at the end of the day you did find a town with an inn so you don't have to sleep outside and that sort of thing and and we just progress through that however if they want to just jump from encounter to encounter or major thing to major thing then I also kind of have that mapped out where I can quickly look at my list and say okay for the first three days nothing really importance happens and you end up spending a total of eight gold each on you know stopping and meals and whatnot should you choose to but on the sixth day something happens da 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 and we'll walk through it like that so that's generally how I do it Um, the players in my uh, online game they ran into a couple of interesting things Um, one thing they ran into is a strange set of teleporting stones Uh, They have no idea how these work, or why these are just stuck out in the middle of the uh, wilderness, but they are, and now they are very curious as to on the return trip back home, should they stop and mess around with these stones? Uh, I guess we'll see what they find out. Okay, so next I had my tabletop game that we have approximately about once a month. It is in the same campaign world, and right now uh, My players in my tabletop game are exploring a deep dungeon called Tulluk. The reason that they're in this dungeon is twofold. One, they are trying to recover a lost legendary sword that may help them defeat the uh, Chaos Lords that are attempting to take over the world. Secondly, they're trying to free a number of humans who have been enslaved by the bestials who uh, appear to be in league with these Chaos Lords and are helping promote, you know, their cause and like overtaking the civilized uh, races and dominating the world in their own image. Um, they've been at this for a number of sessions now and they are deep in a demon fortress And when we last left our tabletop players, they had just recovered a a chaos relic, the Hammer of Rundez, which they are going to use to destroy the Gem of Zuckuth. The Gem of Zuckuth supposedly is keeping all of the demonic guardians of this fortress there. And if they, they believe that if they destroy the gem, the uh, demons will go away. The greater demon guardian will tell them what the, where the sword is in exchange for his, their freedom. And life will be good. Well, they're not so sure, though. You know, they, They're not trusting these demons as far as they can throw them. They encountered something really strange right at the demon forge. There was an exit. And out of this exit was this fungal growth that was growing into the forge. Now, around the edges of this growth, it was blackened and, and and dead. And but as the as you progressed into the growth, this this blackness and brownness, this decay, went away. And eventually, it was very vibrant growth. Um, For those of you that have uh, played Half-Life, if you can imagine the uh, growth that was on the Zen levels, uh, that's kind of my inspiration for what I'm seeing, down to the little tubes that had the uh, glowing ends that would retract as you get close to them. Uh, As a DM, I liberally steal from everywhere. So anyway, so we picked up this game with them there at the edge of this fungal growth. And they were very curious because this, as they stepped into this growth, they didn't feel the oppressive chaos from the demon fortress anymore. They felt a different, more peaceful energy. So with, you know, that temptation in mind, they explored. And they ran into a myconid race called the Ilum. Now they encountered these Ilum, the the first Ilum they encountered were in some sort of a circle and the Ilum were quite clearly performing some sort of magic um, through this circle. There were 12 of them and they had joined hands and so the druid of the party uh, gained entrance to participate in the circle and communicated with the Ilum. the Ilum are not like anything that the players have encountered before. And that was my challenge as a DM. How do you play a race that is truly alien in thinking as well as in well, in alien thinking and in how they see the, the world, their world, how they interact with it? Um, for the Ilum, growth is life. What do they care about? Well, their objective, if you will, is to grow. The ilum are a type of a entity where the bigger they are, the more intelligent they are, the more capable they are. So their purpose is to grow so that they can grow in sentience and they can grow in their awareness. Now, for... You know, ever since they come into existence, they have lived underground in this cavern. And they've recently, recently being on the order of centuries, have started to creep out and grow into other areas. One of the areas being the Demon Fortress. Now, the chaos energy in the Demon Fortress kills the, the uh, fungal growth but not fast enough that the fungal growth can't continue to progress so it's a very long battle of attrition and given enough millennia the ilum would win they would completely cover the whole area of the demon fortress negating the the you know the energy of the demon fortress and they would grow and they would then grow in intelligence but they don't see themselves as individuals. It is a collective we because it is kind of one entity, if you will, with all of the separate ilum being part of the greater whole. So my job as a DM was, as they were interacting with the Illum, is to think like that, to think from that perspective, and it was really hard. Um, one of the, the players made the comment that, well, this is kind of like talking to friendly Borg, and in some ways, that is kind of my inspiration, but you know whereas the borg were didn't care about the other races and they were interested in just gaining the technology and you know changing the the uh, other you know the, the species into perfection the illum here they aren't cruel they aren't necessarily power hungry or you know thinking about perfection they just want to grow and they want to become smarter and they want to become more aware they really had never dealt with any other sentient beings that they could communicate with and interact with and learn from so the PCs have caused quite a um, well kind of crisis of self in the Ilum you know that they are confronting another species that is apparently sentient but are many and apparently individual, and they had no concept and still really don't have a concept of what individuality is. However, something very interesting, so the Ilum had progressed into a level where there are truly some alien creatures and they were beaten back, so they decided not to go there. But what they didn't know was enough of them had survived that there was this little area of peace, if you will, in the middle of the um, the alien um, level, well, the PCs had ran into the alien level, and they described this to the Ilum, and the Ilum were shocked. You know, how could we exist without being part of us? And so they they probed the mind of the mage, uh, saw that it was indeed true. Well, this really caused a crisis of faith. So, so the upshot is, is they have actually separated one of the ilum that move around, um, you know, like a bipedal, um, you know, mushroom man, a am and have sent that with the players to understand better what being an individual is like. There's a lot of role playing that went on with this. It was it was pretty tough, but the, but the players just had an absolute blast with it. I was really forcing them to step outside of their comfort zone. Most of the, most of what they've done right now has been you know combat and exploring and and finding out where things are. Now they're really having to deal with something just strange that isn't about roles that isn't about you know uh finding out what's there they have to talk they have to negotiate they have to explain things you know how how do you what's a weapon why are you fighting these creatures why don't you just allow yourself to die death is part of life growth is life something else will happen and they're having to explain the very essence of why they do what they do to this thing that has no reference, so it, it has been it was a very rewarding game yesterday i 'm really looking forward to seeing where they go with that in the future. One real thing I wanted to cover from my um my tabletop game before I continue on to the play by post game is to touch really quick on a d and d combat and i 'm going to cover this in a feature podcast because um for the past ten years i haven't done by the book. A- Advanced Dungeons and Dragons First Edition combat. Um, I kind of fell into the belief, as many people do, that First Edition ad combat is some insanely complex thing that you need, you know, wheel computers and 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 you know, big long documents to uh, to do. I'm here to tell you that that is furthest from the truth. Um, and, and I have to credit a gentleman on some of the uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Facebook groups. Unfortunately, he's no longer there. But uh, a shout-out to Jeff Mabry. Uh, you showed me that first edition ad and combat really is easy. And here's kind of a teaser taste, if you will. One of the things that I'm teaching my players is that initiative is not the first step into combat. We are all used to roll for initiative, you know, and, and a lot of that comes from the basic expert game, comes from the war games that uh, D&D shared uh, lineage with, the idea that you have to see who goes first. In AD&D, that's actually not the case. In AD&D, you look at the situations first to see if initiative even applies. Let me give you an example. Charging. In Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, charging is an action where you will enter into combat and fight in the same round. Now there's pluses and minuses. The pluses to charging is you get to move and fight in the same round rather than kind of moseying up and preparing yourself and then launching into melee the next round. Uh, The other thing about charging is that the impetus of your charge, the the ferocity of your charge, gives you a bonus to hit. The downside is is that your armor class is not as good. You're not defending yourself as well, so it might be easier for those who are being charged to attack you. In addition, if your opponent has an appropriate polearm weapon, they can set to charge and they may cause you double damage. Well, a charge doesn't work off of initiative. A charge is based on the uh, person saying, I'm going to charge this group or I'm going to charge this opponent. The opponent deciding what are they gonna do. Maybe they're gonna charge back, maybe they're gonna set to receive the charge or maybe they're going to allow themselves to be charged. And then figuring out At the end of the charge, wherever they meet, who has the longer weapon? Initiative doesn't even come into play here. But there may be other parts of this combat where they're not charging. They're already in melee. They may be casting spells. They may be doing something else. So initiative may or may not apply to these other groups as well. I'm gonna cover this a little bit later because ad combat is truly something that is rich. Um, it takes a little explaining, but once you do explain it, it is absolutely nowhere near as difficult as everybody makes it out to be. Okay. So let's talk about the play-by-post game real quick. Um, They, too, are in a dungeon. They are exploring an abandoned ruined temple right now. And uh, they've ran into a couple of interesting things. They've ran into a secret door that it was covered in plaster. So they chipped away the plaster and found out that there's this big, huge block, which is about the uh, width of uh, three uh, individuals and is as tall as an individual. And they're trying to figure out how they can manipulate this block uh, to get whatever's beyond it. They've also ran into an extremely heavily locked door and what may be by heavily locked it's that the locking mechanism itself was very large the bars that come out of the lock to hold the door in place are very large so it was going to take some effort for the thief to um to pick it to unlock it now normally on most locks if if it's a a player whose class is thief I'll let them have the picking. You know, it's more of a function of time than it is of ability. However, if it's an intricate lock or it's an important lock, or it's a maybe perhaps a trapped lock, or it's a difficult lock like this one was, I will go ahead and make them roll. The reason I make them roll is not only about failure, but something I'll add in is that if they fail really bad, then I start checking to see if their tools break. So, give you an example. Let's say the their picking lock is say thirty five percent, and they roll a ninety three. That's a pretty bad failure. Anytime you're in the nineties, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you really muffed this up. So then I roll on the item saving throw to see if a tool breaks. Usually I'll use the soft metal versus crushing blow um, saving throw for those of you that are looking at the uh, uh, Dungeon Master's Guide. If they fail or if that item fails then it breaks. Now I don't penalize the thief because you know what, a thief is going to be smart, they're going to know how to use their tools and they know how to substitute tools. So in this case, I'll say, okay, you know, you're, you're not prevented from picking future locks, but now you're at a, at a disadvantage and I'm going to reduce the percentage may, maybe by 5% or 10%, what have you, um, depending on how many tools they've lost. And I'll make a note on their character that, you know, uh, future uh, chances they, uh, they aren't going to do as well. That's the other thing about th- uh, Thief's abilities. They don't roll it. I do. Because failure is interesting, uh, you know. A thief is going to be creeping around, and you know they're they're attempting to move silently and hide in shadows. And I roll it. Let's say they only miss it by a percent or two. I will tell them, "Oh, you think you're you know you're sneaking around and you're quiet, but knowing in the back of my head that there is a good likelihood now that they may be found out because they think they're doing okay, but they're really not." I think that's interesting. Now, if they fail it really badly, they'll know. You know, if somebody's trying to, you know, hide in shadows, and they realize that their leg is sticking out into the broad daylight, I'm gonna let them know. Okay, so we're coming up at about a uh, half hour, and I don't like my podcasts to ramble on. And we've talked about all the things that I really wanted to talk about. Um, A couple of final notes. Um, I have started releasing a zine based on my three hexes Um, I I did a series of blog posts in 2017 2018 um, called three hexes the idea is that you don't need to map out an entire world to start a campaign you literally only need uh, three things an idea of your campaign your home base and three locations for the players to choose from to go find things to do, hence the three hexes. Um, I wanted to release a book, uh, but that's really not in the cards for me to be able to do. So I am got a lot of material written where I took those posts and juiced them up and made them a lot better. And so I'm releasing them in the form of pay-what-you-want zines. I'll put the link to... Um, the, uh, drive through RPG site where you can go and pick these up. If you want, give them a look. Um, really it's pay what you want. If you get something out of them, Hey, a buck would be appreciated if you don't have a dollar or you don't want to pay for it, or you don't think it's worth it. Absolutely. No worries. Enjoy the download. I'm going to be releasing these about as frequently or infrequently as I release these podcasts. So I may, you know, put a lot out there and then it may take a month or two for me to release another one. But I hope you enjoy them. I hope you'll give them a look and uh, let me know what you think. The other thing is, is if you are on the anchor.fm site, uh, hearing this podcast, or if you can go take a look at the description, click the link to ask me questions. Uh, one of the neat things about um, Anchor is that you, the uh, listener, can actually call in, if you will. I think it's kind of cool. You can call in with your computer or phone and ask questions, make comments. Let me know what you think about the podcast. Let me know what you think about the content. Ask me questions if, uh, if uh, you've got a question on maybe AD&D combat or how I handled the uh, strange illum, um, I'd love to hear from you. Okay, that's it. Uh, Really appreciate it. And uh, once again, like I said at the beginning of the episode, please hug your loved ones tight. That's it for now. Game on.